As we go to the scripture reading this morning, getting Bubba in prayer mood, um, as David reads, there's a reason that the last, I think it's the last sentence that he's going to read is there. And, And this is the story of at the beginning of one of the Gospels, of, of Jesus kind of discovering who his disciples might be. But there's this question at the end that has always kind of troubled me. Let's see if you can figure out which that is. Today's Gospel reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 46. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by... He exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Holy wisdom, holy word. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I have to explain it. This this small hovel of a community sat perched on the edge of a cliff. Many archaeologists don't even believe it was there a hundred years before you know, B.C. turned to A.D. or B.C.E. turned to C.E. That what it did is it became this enclave, this gathering place in a very difficult time of some of the few Jews that lived or sought to live in that area. Probably had no more than 100 to 300 people and probably 300 at its height. Very, very small. But the other thing that is amazing about it is here it is, again, sitting on this perch of a cliff or hillside, and it is surrounded literally by by probably seven to ten completely different cultures that bring completely different religious understandings. The other thing we have to understand about Galilee, 
uh, as, we, as we kind of ponder that question, can anything good come out of Nazareth, is that this is a, this is a location in the northern kind of sphere of kind of the Israelite empires. They were a tenacious bunch, these Galileans. They were a fighting bunch, these Galileans. And no less than five times, different dynasties, different, different empires came and, and wiped it basically off the face of the planet. And then 10 or 15 or 20 years later, inhabitants began to come back. And then it happened again. And then 10 or 20 years later, inhabitants came back to the area. Even when Rome conquered and, and, and became the Roman Empire, twice they did the same thing to Galilee. They completely destroyed it because they were seeking to fight Roman domination. And so what you do, if a Roman and somebody's fighting Roman domination, you wipe them out. And they did. Twice. Twice. And yet, after every one of those, that same cycle continued. Is They began to come back believing that God was with them, <clears throat> that God had chosen this land for them, that God was with them even in every, in every moment when they were destroyed or sent away, exiled, that God was with them in that place. And that, that God would protect them and God would bring them back and God would help reestablish them in that location. And so what was the response to all of that, generation after generation after generation, is that they felt like what they needed to do was establish a place that was only theirs. And that place was Nazareth. This small enclave, this small, almost Jewish fortress, surrounded by others. And you can only imagine, can't you, that... that what happened then is, is that they became very protective of each other, that they became very sacred with each other, that, that they did everything they could to make sure that the Judaism that they believed in would continue, even to the point where they would pass that on to their children. Not only would they pass on the history of this world domination and God's protection of them, they would pass on their understanding of the Torah and the laws. And they would pass on the specific roles that were played by every member of that population. And by the way, in the midst of it all, unlike other places, when you hear the word family in Nazareth or even in Galilee, family extends well beyond blood. Family extends to the rest of that community. And theirs was to take care and protect each other. Now think of the Christmas story of Mary and Joseph and what Joseph did for Mary to protect her. It's an amazing location. It's an amazing place. An island in and of itself surrounded by so many other things. This is where Jesus grew up. This is the culture into which Jesus was born. These were the attitudes of Jesus as he grew up. And I also have to explain that, that inasmuch as they did not believe like the um, Jerusalem 
Jews believed. They did believe that they had to go to the temple every year to sacrifice, to atone for whatever sins they had. So they would make that journey, and as I said last week, they would, they would begin with heavy purses that they had saved throughout the year. But by the time they came home from Jerusalem, their purses were virtually empty because the cost of going to the temple to offer the sacrifice was so overwhelming they would continually come back to Galilee asking themselves, is that really what God intends? Is it really that God intends for the priests and the scribes to become wealthy, to, to reestablish my relationship with my creator? Really, it's about them being wealthy? And they would come back angry, upset, frustrated with the fact that that was the Judaism in the South when they knew something different in the North. And ironically enough, as I said to my classes Wednesday, ironically enough, it was the Jews in Jerusalem, those temple authorities that looked up to Galilee and thought they were country bumpkins. They talked with a different accent. They used a different kind of dialect. They were simple folks, poor folks, and yet law-abiding folks. And ironically enough, if you look at the scriptures, the Old Testament and the laws, it were the Galileans, it was the Galileans that were following the law much more appropriately than anything that was happening in Jerusalem. And they knew it. So here comes Jesus then, this unusual young man. And like every other young man in his village, became a man at 12 years old and began to follow his father learn the Torah, offer his opinions at synagogue. And his sisters also became women at 12 years old, would become married even at 12 or 13. There was no such thing as adolescence in this time. Every child was forced to grow up very, very quickly. It was an incredible time. It was a confusing time. And yet again, I have to say, it is the time in which Jesus grew up. And aren't we, friends, aren't we defined at least partially by our surroundings? And what then did Jesus choose to do? He chose to take that kind of enclave and tell them it cannot remain that way. It has to go out. And and. And he becomes a follower himself of a man named John who would baptize people in the Jordan River and he followed them. He followed John and learned from John and learned about what John felt until it was time for him to break away from that and establish something of his own ministry. It was that day that he went back to Nazareth. Uh, for many of us, a very familiar scripture, a very familiar story of him going back as a man, as a teacher, as a rabbi, stepping back into that synagogue and opening the scroll of Isaiah where it talks about liberating the oppressed, clothing the naked, giving hope to the hopeless. And he rolled that up and placed it back and said, this scripture has now been fulfilled in your hearing. That didn't make them angry. It was the next set of statements that made them angry. Where he said, basically, you can't stop here. 
your call is to take that and become a light for the nations. To take that word and spread it. He'd already been known, friends, to go to places that were forbidden for any good Jew to go. Samaria. We have that story of him at the well in Samaria with the woman who was a harlot. And Jesus talking about living water. We have him going to Magdala and visiting a woman that it says had seven demons. Seven things for which she needed to be healed. And he was there accepting her and taking her into that body, that love, that grace. The woman who had been bleeding for 30 years, who was untouchable in society, Jesus calls her daughter. He took all those things that he learned as a child and as a young adult and as a teenager and took them farther and expanded that out into one of the most diverse areas in the world of that time, including that whole region around Nazareth. Whether it was Roman or Greek or Syrophoenician or any of those cultures, he took a message of love and grace and healing to those places. And those in Nazareth wanted to kill him for that message. So here's the deal. Friends, we live in a time that is changing rapidly. We live in a region that is changing rapidly. And we've all seen it, and we all feel it, and we approach it with some very distinctive kinds of approaches. For some of us, we approach it with fear. For others, we approach it like those in Nazareth. We approach this area and this time wanting to just protect ourselves. We approach it, some of us, with anger. And yet, this church was planted in this place, and I believe in the providence of God, for such a time as this. We've now realized that there are ten languages spoken in the preschool downstairs as first languages. Ten different languages. Korean, Japanese, Chinese, East Indian dialects, even French, Indo-Chinese, and others spoken downstairs. We look around ourselves and you know, we had our final cross-country meet on Friday, I mean, on, yesterday, on Saturday, and, and just to look through the faces of those middle school kids as they prepared to run and seeing the incredible diversity in those kids. And I'm not just talking culturally. I'm talking socioeconomically as well. Incredible diversity in those kids. And yet, as I said last week, and Daniel, Linda Daniel mentioned this this morning, how overwhelmed other, the other teams were as Ty E. Middle School and all of the runners went all the way back to pick up our slowest runner and chant him all the way across the finish line, supporting him, calling his name, encouraging him across the finish line. And if you look at him and you look at the rest of the group, you want to talk about diverse. He's different on many, many levels. He's different and yet supported and encouraged 
by that group of young athletes. It was amazing to watch as all of the high school coaches yesterday came and spoke to the middle school runners. And what was even more amazing to me was watching every high school have representatives from their cross-country teams to support the middle schoolers as they were taking on this all-city meet. And again, you want to talk about diverse? Incredible diversity there. Here's where we are, though. If you look at our congregation right now, we are about 94% Anglo. About 94%. The preschool is about 40% non-Anglo. The community is growing to 42 to 47%. And it's time for us to recognize that. And it's time for us to move beyond some Nazareth kinds of attitudes into the attitude that every one of us has a responsibility, a call as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to look into this community and see those who surround us and create relationships with them. And it's not us and them, it's us, friends. It's us. And build relationships and hear their stories. I will tell you, one of the, one of the great things that happened in the life of this church happened Monday night in Friendship Hall as, as we gathered for Common Table, our, our kind of quarterly all-church gathering. And, and what was fun is, is we sat there over on this side were, were Wendy and Dorothy and me and Jen and Carissa, and we were swapping stories and howling at, at, at some of the things that we were hearing. Then across the way was Alan and, and Laura, and they were doing the same thing. And, and just felt so good. And then Harris stood up and said, Okay, staff, we need to know something that no one else probably knows about you. And Roger Ringles and I, Roger who just sang, found out that we shared a piece of history. You know what Roger said first? This morning at first service, he, he just blurted out, Yeah, we both have handlers. <laughs> Uh, and we do. <laughs> but we shared being, being singing waiters early on in our lives. But listening to the stories that were shared in that time, coming from the staff, was so rich. And I just kept thinking about today's message. Friends, we have stories to share, but we're not the only ones with stories. The Japanese family that just purchased the home above us has a story to tell, and I can't wait to hear it. But they're not going to come to me. They're new. It means me going to them and saying, oh, please share your story so that we can build that relationship. And that's our call as a church. I mean, close with this thought. One of the other really moving things uh, on Monday night was watching Laura watching Laura, you know, provide her slide for the, the work that she's doing to outreach to other churches, to bring, build counseling programs and pastoral care programs to other churches. And having the superintendent come and, and talk to me about the fact that there are two churches in South Seattle that, that we need to partner with. And partner is the right word. Well, one of those is Riverton Park, one of the most diverse churches in our district, and if not in our conference. 
And the partnering means that they have something to offer us as we have something to offer them. And what they can offer us is to learn about diversity and growing in that diversity because they went and have become this incredible, celebratory, all-accepting church that embraces the diversity around them. And I believe we have the call to do the same. Let's not become Nazareth, friends. Let's not even continue to think that way. But to embrace those cultures that surround us. To encourage relationships with all that are around us. And to become much more of a community church. A community church. Embracing all of those rich cultures around us. Will you pray with me? God, as we look at Galilee and we look at Nazareth and we look at our own history, we, we do seek your guidance. But help every one of us remember that it's not just up to the staff to go out and, and develop these relationships. It's up to every single one of us to do this. And there are ways to do it. The health team and the dances, the the invitations, the football team here on Thursday evenings, the I mean so many places are scouting programs. For so many it just means a simple invitation. For others it means developing a relationship where we can jointly understand the cultures in which we ourselves have grown. God guide us in this time. Help us decide that this is your call for us. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.